on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third lawn? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor alpha bubble corner. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. We have a good friend on, Dr. Chuck Allen, a psychologist out of Centennial, Colorado. I never thought I would be on a podcast talking about mental health and suicide intervention, but I will say what I've learned. Yeah, exactly. What I've learned through people that I care about taking their own lives is that miss them i want them back i wish i had read the signs differently like every family that goes through those same challenges the anger how could they do this why how did i not notice all those things that happened to the survivors of suicide is something that is really impossible to explain to someone unless you've been through it well you know, now you've separated it from the individual who chooses to kill themselves to the people that are bystanders who are, and, and I would, I would push this all the way to, they're very selfish. Why don't you respect that his right to kill himself? You see, we, we, we don't have a stigma and we don't have a disrespect of somebody who's in the later stages of cancer committing suicide, but we have a reason that we can't help them. We got some kind of a stigma about that. But you see, the cultural problems that we have are, uh, you know, uh, they, 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 they do tie to religion. I, I think that um, it's, it's a, a, a lot of that, you know, it's a mortal sin to commit suicide in the Catholic Church. And so we have these religious philosophies that say it's not okay to do that. So it's a cultural philosophy that, that sets that stuff up. And so people that are, the, the families that's, that's left behind are angry because they've lost their loved one. They're, they're, how dare you leave me behind? How dare you go do that? That was awfully selfish of you. Whatever goes through their head. And, and they're suffering. What's really interesting about my journey is I was very angry towards suicide and I, I really struggled. I was so, I don't even know what the words are for it, but I, I've, be, I've got to this place in my life where I'm not saying I'm for suicide, but I certainly do respect assisted suicide for, I, I respect people's right to not be in pain anymore. And, and I even look at, the friends that I know that have taken their own lives and they were so exhausted and so much pain. They, I believe they felt that it was time for them to go. They didn't want to be this mentally right. exhausted. They were, exa they were tired and they were in pain and that's right. why they took their own lives. And a lot of it had to do with depression. And I say to a lot of people, he or she didn't take their lives. Depression did. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're so hopeless and you're in a valley, it's really hard um, to accept help. And that's the only downside about all of that is there is help available. They're not alone, but they get to a point where they want to choose that finite answer of suicide to right. final decision, take away the pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so you, what you just said is basically they have pain. They have no hope or idea that there's a solution to it. And there, so this is simply their way of terminating it. You know, a lot of people don't have the, I, I think the psychological ability to commit suicide, to, to, to actually pull the trigger or take the pills or whatever. So they go out and they decide that they're going to have somebody else help them. So they have an assisted suicide. Uh, they call it suicide by cop for one, one example. And, and there are doctors out there who understand this and, 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 and have the compassion for their patients who are suffering like that. And so they, 
they they provide them with the means to overdose, you know, and and they know what they're doing, um, and it's kind of like winked at and blinked at. So, you know, I I guess my problem is why can't we just be honest about it and be straightforward and and cut the uh, uh, you, you know cut, cut the political notions the politically correctness of it or not correctness of it whatever so let's just be straight with it and i think we would probably be a lot more effective as as mental health people if we would cut through the the politics you know what's interesting you hear you talk like that because you help so many people who are suicidal live a long and happy healthy life yet when you talk to people in the trucking or the railway industry, they'll tell you things that they've seen that we never knew existed. Like people choose to, you know, take their own lives in certain ways, but it happens in a way where you're saying it's almost okay if they want to do that. If they want to, you mean commit suicide? Yeah. If they want is to. It okay. Yeah. Why, why isn't it okay? Hmm. Why is it bad for somebody with depression to kill themselves? versus a person with late stage of cancer to kill themselves. Why, why is there a difference between those two things? Well, I think just me as you're talking there, I mean, I would think that the person with cancer, there might not be the ability to save them. Cancer will take them. But the person with depression, there's hope. I mean, I use those words all the time. There's always hope. And, but that's know, from your perspective. What about theirs? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I know. I just think, you know, for depression, I really, I'd like to think you can get through it. I mean, maybe with medication, maybe with counseling, maybe I'd like to think, but you know what? I, I know now that's a, that's a lack of understanding because there are people who, you know, have struggled for so long and are in so much pain, they can't do it anymore. Well, and I think that's the point. It's called empathy. It's called the ability to Look at the world through their eyes. And that's the hardest thing for most people to do. Um, you know, you come to a, to a psychologist and they're going to give you advice. Whereas my, my job is not to give them advice from my perspective. My job is to give them, is to go in there and help them find the answers to their questions within them. And, and, um, usually that's pretty successful. And I, and like I said, I, I, I do not know of any patient over the last 48 years that has ever killed themselves. I know many people that I've worked with that I, you know, uh, you know, that, that, uh, have, have taken advantage of the help and I've talked to them later, <laughs> Many many months or years later that I've, I've touched base, I, but I, but I don't know. You know, there, it's possible that I've lost dozens. You know that that they talked to me and that was finished and it was over, and, and a month later they did it. I and, and I just have never heard about them. So, you know, I, I can't say that I've never lost anybody. I can say that I don't know that I've lost anybody. What can someone say when their brother, friend, loved one calls them and? says, I'm taking my own life. What are the words they can say to them at that moment to intervene? The first thing I would say, if I was a, if I was a family member and I, um, or, or a neighbor or a friend, anybody, the first words that I would think anybody should say is something like, why did you call? You must be looking for a sliver of hope. You must be looking for one last reason not to do this. So you called and I would be really up and willing to sit down with you, get together right now and talk to you. When you ask someone you think that might be suicidal, if they're thinking of harming themselves and they say no, I was given this idea from a, another speaker. And he said, when you believe they're going to harm themselves or take their own lives and they say no, and you don't believe them, ask them why not ask them why they're not going to take their own lives, have them put voice to right. why they want to be here. That, that's a great idea. That's exactly challenge the opposite challenge the, the, the flip side of that coin. 
and deal with it. Right. That's a great idea. And when someone's in at the point where they're seriously thinking about taking their lives, um, how do you handle that from uh, a family member's point of view? So if somebody's thinking about taking their life and you're there with them, I wonder how many times that's happened where someone's been with someone and they've taken their own life, like right there. Well, I, I can give you one example of a veteran of mine, one, one of my veterans. He described his experience, believe they were in Japan or Okinawa, somewhere over. They, they had been blown up in Vietnam. This, and they, he was in a, where they put most of them are in orthopedic wards because they've got no legs or they've got, you know, extreme orthopedic issues. So he was on the orthopedic ward with this guy and, and he was a, a, across the way, very close to his bed. And this guy was in intractable pain. He was, he was screaming a lot of the day and they, the morphines, they had maxed out the amount of drugs they could give him to keep him sedated, but it wasn't enough. And his, his wounds were so severe that he couldn't move his arms. He couldn't do it. He was on a machine. He was on a ventilator and he was on all kinds of stuff. Um, so, so his pain was unbelievable. And he, he was able to communicate with, with my patient enough to, to ask him to please unplug his, his machine, pull the plug. And my patient wanted the compassion that he had for him was, was powerful. He wanted so much to do it, but morally he could not pull that plug on this guy. So he, he, um, what he did was he rigged up a, um, a string or some kind of a rope or cord to the, to the outlet, to the plug. And he put, fixed it in such a way that, um, this guy could, um, with, with, with just the slightest movement of one of his hands, he, he could pull it himself. And he did, you know, so he rigged it so the guy could pull it, but so the guy could, 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 uh, could die and, and it, and it worked. Hmm. And so he spent many, many years feeling guilty that he had, um, he had killed somebody. He had assisted in the suicide. Uh, the, the thing about Vietnam, I guess, is that we um, we were fishing barrels. You know, we had rocket attacks every day. We had plenty of opportunities to um, to get killed, so to speak. Um, it it uh, you know, I and and I recall that we got our first rocket attack probably within thirty minutes, twenty to thirty minutes after we arrived. We landed and 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 they said, oh yeah, that's just. That's just uh, Charlie welcoming you to, to uh, this fair country, you know, and that was a common thing. And so, you know, and they just lobbed two or three rockets into the base every, every day. It, it depends on how accurate they were. You know, sometimes they did close. Um, other times, I, I, the closest I think I ever came, I was in, I was in the chow hall and, and looking out the window in the, in the chow hall and, and uh, in line. And it, it was probably about 50 feet outside. It hit, hit right outside the the chow hall and that was probably the closest one that i personally ever came to but we had a couple times when when uh uh charlie decided to come through the wire and he they, they had what they called sappers people that would come in with these explosives and they'd throw them into the intake of a of an f4 and uh you know blow up their planes and so they they would come in under the wire and be sneaking around at night well, there were a couple of times when they, they came in and, and we had to gear up and, and um, you know, get ready for them and go. go. We, everybody had a, a, what they call a, a, a command post where, where we had to go. If, if we were under a full-blown attack, we all had our duty stations where we would go. Did you get used to it? Like, are you, were you in a state of hypervigilant the whole time or were you like, oh, no, I'm good with that rocket attack? You know, that's exactly, uh, that's the essence of my PTSD and, 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 and my issues. Um, I, I, I spent probably the first two weeks not, not sleeping. I was so hypervigilant. I was absolutely convinced that there's no way a rocket can hit me. I, I, can, I can dodge rockets. And, and if I stay awake, then I, I'm, I'm going to be okay. 
Well, after about two weeks, it kind of kind of started to drag on you. And I remember walking across the compound one day, and and I I looked up, and it was a cloudless day, sun was shining, and I and I remember I remember saying to myself, you know, I'm thirteen thousand miles from home, and I do not want to die in this damn place, but this might be the last place. This may be the final place on the face of the earth that I walk. And if this is the last place that I walk, so be it. And when I used those words, when I, when I said those words, so be it, I remember this incredible relief. It was just like something lifted off of me. And I go, wow. It took me a few years after that and getting into this business that I realized what I had done. And, and, um, I I made peace with my own death. I made peace with my own mortality, and I realized that that um, that was it. How long have you been a psychologist? About forty-seven years. So, what you just talked about in that aha moment you had in Vietnam—can you teach that? Can you teach that to first responders, doctors, nurses? I think yes. And that's what I've been doing probably for the last 10 or 15 years. I realized when I was going to graduate school, if you talked about religion or spirituality, you'd, they'd draw me out of the profession. You know, Freud was an atheist. And, and so religious stuff was, was, um, was against the rules. And, and I realized after I was out there and in the field long enough that that was just a bunch of BS. So when I started to integrate spiritual issues into, and, and, and it's not my spiritual issues, it's, it's theirs. My job was to find out how did they think about their God? How did they think about their experience? Then at, at that point, use those tools to help them make sense out of their traumatic event. My, one of my patients at the VA had been shot four times in the chest with a 50 caliber machine gun. How do you make sense out of that? That they come back with, with no arms and no legs. Or, or you've, you've seen people who survived a fire, I'm sure, and they've been burned 80% of their body and they survive. Well, I think it's that will to live. There's a spiritual part of us that makes a decision. I'm not ready to go yet or... Yeah, it's over. I'm done. And so the soul, the spirit, is what chooses. The person who jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge and changes their mind halfway down survives. You met my wife. She's a uh -huh. strong woman of faith. Most of my friends, they believe, they're, they have their faith, and I don't. I always make the joke, if, you know, if I do get to heaven, God better tie up a month of his calendar because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but I do believe I do have the will to live, but I learned that through getting into a valley in life and having to climb out of it. Right. How do you work with people that, like myself? So say someone comes to see you that doesn't have a super strong faith. Do you have, have to change the way you treat them? I, I've never found one yet. I have people that are not religious, but that's different than not spiritual. And, and so I have never found a person who doesn't have a sense that they have a being within them and that their, their uh, soul has either, here, here's the main issue, do you have a soul? And does that spirit live after your death or is your, does your soul die when your body dies? And that's, that's the question that I will go for. I look for that belief system. And, and so then I, then I challenge him. I said, well, if you think that you're, you, you know, if you're going to die and your soul dies when your body dies, what, what, why are you upset about this guy who, you know, that person who died, that baby who died in that fire? Why, why does it, why, why are you bothered by that? And so I'm looking at that point in time to why is that person traumatized and, and what is going on? Why, why is it that they can't put that together and make that make sense? And, and, and my job is not to go give them some idea about their spirituality. 
but my job is to find out where they think about the issue of death, whether you believe in God or not. You know, and, and I, I, I'll share my personal ideas. I, I don't have a way to prove that God exists. To me, that doesn't matter. What matters is how I relate to the universe, how I interact and make meaning out of my life. And that's the key to it. How do we make meaning out of these issues? Trauma occurs because the person can't get their head around it. A person is traumatized when that event cannot make sense. In, in, you know, and I know in your case, that, that woman on that balcony, you, you were not traumatized by, by her death. You were traumatized by the lack of respect for her being from the crowd. Yeah, I was angry. Like I wasn't, I wasn't bothered by that call. 150 people had their cell phone cameras out in there. Watching. Right. Channeled my anger. And, and, and that's my point. You have to, you couldn't get your head around that. Why? why? What, would, what would be the issue of what's, what's wrong with those people filming that? Why does that bother you that they, they did not show her some dignity? Uh, I think that I've seen enough death in my life and most people respect death in a way where they'll look away or they'll, you know, they'll respect it. They're, that, that level of respect seems to be gone. Everything's posted on YouTube and Instagram and, oh, I, I was here. I'm going to show everybody where I was and they're going to see this on the news, but they really don't care about her and family. Pretty graphic situation. Um, but yeah. But there's, but there's something inside you that says there's meaning to that. There's something about that that's wrong. That right. lack of dignity, that lack of respect right. for human life. And there's something wrong with that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and that's, that's where you go. I mean, that's where I would go with you. It, it wouldn't be a matter of you becoming religious or spiritual or something. I, I think religion serves a great purpose. Um, uh, there's, there's Joseph Campbell once, once talked about the three major religions in the world, Judaism, Islam, and, and Christianity. The spiritual maturity, let's put it, their development is probably equivalent to the intellectual development of a, of a first grader, third grader, their elementary school kids. So they need concrete, they need to see it, they need to think about it in a, in a, in a materialistic way. They can't get their head around the infinity. They can't get their head around the, the uh, spiritual nature. So, so God has to be on a throne. You know, God has to be physical in some way. And, and that level is, that, that's okay. That every, they, they, that's where they are. That's what they need. So religion serves a, a wonderful purpose for people that need the structure and the organization and somebody to help them think it through because they're not there yet. Then there's people that, that you know, maybe would venture to say you have, have grown, grown beyond that. And so it doesn't work for you anymore. Organized religion doesn't work. And that's okay. That's where you are, and that's your struggle. But I think everybody has this whole struggle with their own mortality. And at some point, they come to grips with it. And whether it's religious or spiritual or what, but it's, it's an issue that everybody, I think, has to do. <laughs> I, I think that uh, uh, they ha they ha you have to have some sort of sense of, uh, of what the, why are we here? You know, what's the point? What's the purpose of life itself? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I became a very good friend. He became a mentor and a coach to me, was a chaplain of our, of our fire department. And I, I saw how he used his chaplaincy and his faith to not only battle his own depression, but to really guide people who were not strong believers, who were not, you know, people that had any faith. You know, they were like me, to be honest. But I... I fell in love with this human being. He was the kindest, nicest, educated, fair, decent human being. And religion play, didn't play much part into that with me. 
but he used those tools he had, just like you do when someone comes and sees you. I mean, I think we talked before, you've seen hundreds of people who may be suicidal and you don't believe that you know of that you've lost anyone. That's right. And you've used that technique that you've talked about it consistently with everybody. Yeah, the, 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 the main technique is to, is to respect their right to kill themselves if they so choose. I'm, I'm not here to say you are, I'm going to, you know, put you in, in, in a psych hospital and lock you up to disrespect your right to do it. Cause I know that isn't going to work. If they're going to kill themselves, they're going to do it. And, and there's no, I, 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 we had a patient who was suicidal. We had him in a seclusion room in the seventh floor of the VA and he broke out security windows in this psych hospital and jumped out seven floors. Okay. So when you're suicidal and you're determined enough, you, it's going to happen. So if we, if we don't try to prevent suicide, but, but your intervention is to, to intervene. And it's like a, it's like a person who takes advantage of a paramedic on the scene. A person can refuse treatment and they may die, but if they take advantage of a paramedic's skill and expertise, then the paramedic helps them survive. If they have that will to live, they will survive. If they give up the will to live, there's nothing that paramedic is going to do to save them. And that's how I look at it from a suicide. My, my job is as a, as a suicide intervention person, a crisis intervention person, is to confuse that person, to raise the doubt in their mind that maybe there's another alternative. You've chosen suicide as an absolute solution to your problem, whatever those problems are. And you've decided that this is the way out and this will fix everything. And those people that, are, that have no doubt in their mind and are absolutely convinced they never call the crisis center, they do it. The ones that call are saying, is there any other, is there anything is there any way I can gain some hope to fix this? And, and so my job is to, is to challenge them and to come up with some idea that, that raises their ambivalence so that they can say, okay, well, let me, let, me, let me wait. I can always go back and kill myself next week, but let me take a, take a couple more days here to think about it. And that's, that's what it's about. The majority of those people that come see, are they suffering from depression who are suicidal? Yeah, I think the depression is a big piece of it, um, but the other uh, stuff is is just sort of hopelessness. They they get to the point where they they put all their problems on one plate and they're trying to solve them all at the same time, and they're just overwhelmed with the uh, the issues that they have to deal with. Um, and and it's not it it goes then to a different level. Uh, where that again, that goes to the, like you said, the depression or the hopelessness. Um, and, and so they get to the, the emotions, um, go down the tubes versus just the hope. Hope is a psychological, that's an idea. Um, you know, I can fix this, I can solve this, or I can't fix this. That's an idea. Um, but the, the, when you get depressed, you just don't care. You just don't have any energy to, to fix anything. I don't, I'd rather go do nothing than fix something. And then they said, okay, well, you know, enough of this is enough. And then they end it. Suicide in the fire service. Um, how many firefighters are veterans? Several. I only know one personally who suffers from PTSD, but he did a deployment and his PTSD is from that deployment, seeing mass graves, being in firefights. He just happens to be a firefighter, but his, his, his disorder is not from seeing trauma as a firefighter. It's from what he dealt with, or excuse me, what he didn't deal with when he came home. Oh, very good. And, and he was not a firefighter before. No. He was in a large battalion of about 260 people, and they went in. They were, had a peacekeeping mission, but 
they ended up getting into a firefight and trapped and, and they were Canadian contingency, but they ended up there for about six or seven days in a full on firefight, which they weren't expected to be in or to even do when they were over there. And it wasn't until the Americans came in with their jets and their tanks, that they were able to retreat to safety. And he said, when they got back to Germany, 10 days later, six people in his battalion took their own lives. How did they make sense out of that? Well, he told me that when he was there, he'd never, he'd practiced with his firearms, but he'd never thought about actually taking someone's life. So he told me the first few days he was there, when he was shooting at people, he was shooting to miss. He just wanted them to stop and, you know, they were spread out and, you know, went on for quite a while. He said he was shooting to miss. He said, though, in the last couple of days when he was there, he was trying to kill everything. And he goes, I'll give you an example. A dog, this innocent little dog went running down the road and I must have shot it about five times and killed it. And he said, just in that week, my mentality had changed. I think to this day that still, I mean, it still really has had a really negative effect on him. And he says, you know, when I came home, you know, I'd been away for eight months. My wife says, you know, when you were away, I was looking up Bosnia. It sure looks like a beautiful place. And he said, I didn't know what to say to her. I said, yeah, it's beautiful. And that was it. And he ended up getting divorced because there's no way she could understand what he was going through. And, and, and that happens, I think, so many times with veterans. The, he, he had a secret that he brought back with him. And the secret was, if I ever told my wife that I shot that dog five times, she would have been repulsed. So they find other ways to get divorced. They find other ways to drive their spouse away or run, run themselves away from their marriage because they cannot conceive of the idea that they did those things. And, and that is probably, I, I, I can't say, I don't have any data on this, but, but my guess is that that's one of the biggest reasons why cops, firefighters, and veterans get divorced is because they are, have these secrets that they think about themselves. See, that's a judgment. I'm a monster. That's, a, that's, a, that's an idea. That's a judgment that he made of himself. You know, he, he rejects himself, that he doesn't separate his behavior from who he is as a human being. And that's the problem. Our culture measures your value based upon your productivity. You're a bad person if you do bad things. And that's the problem. And we need, as, as mental health folks, we need to help people make that separation that you as a human being, your, your value as a human being is unconditional. You should have unconditional positive regard for yourself. And so if you act badly, fix it. If you do bad things, stop it. You know, I, I know I say it sounds simplistic when I do that, but, but the issue is don't look at your self-worth and, and measure your self-worth based on your actions and your behavior. Because that, does that mean if you do good things, you're a good person? So your good works do not get you into heaven. And so therefore, your bad works probably don't keep you out. It's about your, your value as a human being that has to do with your spiritual stuff. But when you mix those up, when he, when he looked at himself as a monster, he was conflating and mixing up his behavior, shooting a dog, and who he was in his identity. You use this technique, and I've used it for my childhood when I had to look back, and I always thought my childhood was so you know, dysfunctional and you can change your perception. You can change your perception. If you make a mistake, you can look back and say, I wish I didn't do that. I wish that didn't happen. You can wish all you want. You can change your perception of events that have happened in your life. And what I've done is I've looked back at my life and, you know, some of the things that weren't so fun or, you know, were embarrassing, maybe regretful. I look at them and said, oh, well, now, but I never did that until I was late in life. 
Right. And and that's okay because you took you and in other words, what I would say is not rather you know, I wish I hadn't done that. That's a good thing. But then you go a step further and say, Okay, what can I learn from that? How do I learn something about myself from that experience? And how can I grow from it? I know that by doing that I don't like myself. And see now you start to conflate that. But it's a matter of saying, okay, I don't like what I did, and I can learn from it. And, and the, you know, how, how, how many, I, I guess what I would say is that what those bad things that you did that you're not a proud of are prerequisites for you to know who you are now and your current value system, your current morality. And you can't learn that in a classroom. You couldn't read a book and say, you know, don't do this xyz pick pick anything that you you did that you don't like and i would say you know your dad could have told you don't do that and it wouldn't have been the same as if you wouldn't have learned the same lesson than you did when you when you you, you did it by doing it you learn looking about reading about it isn't going to get it you're not going to learn a life is a school and and so as you as you allow yourself to learn in this school, you you then and, and continually ask, wow, what can I learn from that? You know, and you say the same thing when you do something good. Wow, I I I I help that person survive. I help that person uh, uh, survive that accident by applying my medical expertise. And and so, okay, that's good. Does that make you a better person? I would suggest that that's a problem if you think so. If they, you think that's what makes you a good person, you're, in, you're you know, uh, so many people wrap their identity into firefighting, let's say. So many people are saying, you know, if I'm not a firefighter, I'm nothing. So if you if you wrap your your whole identity into being a firefighter or a policeman or a veteran or 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 a clergyman or anything you're screwed if you when when you, if you don't have it if you lose your job as a firefighter then then you're now a piece of crap right that's why so many people struggle when they retire and I'll give you a perfect example i right. see a lot of good firefighters get close to retirement they're captains and they start finding a way to dislike management, dislike the union. They start finding, oh, this is crap. That, and they leave the job miserable. Basically, I believe, this is my own philosophy, is that they can at least convince themselves they're done with this place because it was so important to them. That's right. That's beautiful. And, and so be it. Let them, you know, if that's what they got to do to separate their identity from their, their, from their, from their job, you know, and they have to do this. It's like getting a divorce. I mean, it's like, okay, let's, let's fight until we can justify a divorce because we hate each other now. It is an identity. It's a way of life. It is something special when you put on that uniform, ride around on a truck and you know what, help someone when they're having a bad day, make it a little better. There's not many professions. You can do that in the fire service. Are we getting better? Or are we getting worse? When it comes to depression, when it comes to not being able to help people wrap their heads around trauma, when it comes to suicide? Well, I don't know that we're getting a lot better at it because I don't think the numbers are going down. So it's hard to, to say what we need to do to be more effective at reducing the depression and the suicide. What are the issues that are going on? And, and I don't know that anybody's doing the research to find out what patterns there are. You know, what are the issues that, um, that, are, that are causing? You know, and it doesn't have to go to the level of suicide. It has to just go with the level of depression. It's, it's how, how is the, what, what is happening to the resiliency? of the fire service and their ability to, to bounce back from bad calls or bad, bounce back from these, these issues. Um, and it could be personal. It could be that, that the kind of structure of the fire service is creating such a conflict in their marriages that, 
the divorce rates going up. And, and I don't know what the stats are on that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think depression, what you said there is just such a, something that's not accepted. Even in policing, you can't have depression and be a police officer or firefighter. Right. And carry a gun. Yeah, sure you can. Absolutely you can. The difference between having depression in the fire service is telling someone you have it. Probably half the first responder suffers from some sort of depression. And the same thing in the military. I've had people in private security companies uh, who were extremely concerned about being depressed or on any kind of medication because our cultural stigma around those kind of things, you lose it. He would, he, his words were, if I, if I go on antidepressants, I'll lose my security clearance because he worked for a nuclear facility as security. And, and, um, so, so it's very real that you can't, you're going to be taken offline as a firefighter if you're on medication that, that keeps you from functioning. And that's too bad. I think that's, that's a problem with our culture and saying, hey, you know what? Let's, let's deal with your depression before you decide that it's time to kill yourself. Yeah, that's well put. I know a bunch of police officers said if they walked in and told you know, their CEO that they were suffering from depression, they'd get a desk job. For them, right. it's worse than death. They want to do, they want to ride car. And in the fire service, I mean, it's not an issue to admit to yourself that you have depression. You don't have to walk on a stage and talk about it. But if you could walk into a clinical counselor's office and say, I need help. Right. I think I suffer from depression or go see your doctor and deal with it while you're working. You don't have to tell anybody. But even that alone, I mean, well, I'm the walking poster child for not wanting to admit to myself that I suffer from depression. And it, it only got exposed when I had events, cocooning, the drinking. That's when I allowed it to take over my life. But up until those three big incidents, I could function in my career. Nobody would know. Well, is it reasonable to think that just like drinking, that depression is an escape from the problems that you've got. It's a way of psychologically protecting you from having to cope and deal with the problems because when you're depressed, you don't care. You just don't have any interest and any energy to deal with the problems. And so, of course, they get worse. And, and so it compounds itself, but it's a, it's a psychological solution. I talk a lot about sleep. When I was in my worst way, I hadn't slept in four straight days. The world would have been better off without me when all those thoughts came in. I could fix this financial issue or the world would be, you, you attach a positive thought to you not being here anymore. It's mm. an emergency. That's right. That's right. That's the world, think, look, think of those words. The world would be better off without me. Now, now that sounds like the epitome of arrogance. Who the hell do you think you are? And why do you think the world is even going to blink if you're not here? But that's where people get when they're thinking about taking that's it. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, so, what, so what does it mean that a person thinks that the world would be better off without them? It means that they think that somehow their problems and their issues are so important. And if they could put them in perspective... You know, what's the big deal? What's, what, what does it mean that you've got a financial problem? So, so what? And so when you take an attitude of, okay, yeah, this is an issue. I can handle it. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that the world would be better off without me because I've got financial problems. You see, you see, the, the, see how that connects to the self-image and the self-worth. And, and, and so suicide is a, is a, a, a great solution. I'll be better off. The world will be better off. So why not just do it? That's crazy. So to help firefighters, do you think people out there trying to break down those walls, or I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but there is some sort of wall around the fire service that okay. prevents people like myself from talking. There'll be a group that'll listen. I can't believe he's talking like that. Oh my God. That guy is like, you know, He's a, he's a, he's a flake or, or, but there is a fortress around the fire service to prevent 
firefighters from looking weak and they don't necessarily want to hear right about the stories of someone being depressed or the stories of someone being a great firefighter and then kind of talking about how they've been depressed for the last 30 years okay so now put yourself in the place of your partner look at the world through your partner's eyes and look at the fact that you just walked in and said i'm depressed i'm thinking about killing myself you're his partner and now you the tones go off and you're on a call and now in your mind this guy who just talked like this is he going to have my back is he going to fall apart in this fire is he going to is he going to not do his job because he's depressed and so i can't trust him and so the stigma of not wanting to share that is going to keep you online. But the guy, if you look at it through your partner's eyes, could, uh, can he trust you? So 81% of 7,000 firefighters surveyed said if they went to a peer or captain or lieutenant and said, I need help, I'm struggling, they would be looked at as weak or unfit for duty. And when I right. present, I tell those stats from the IEFS survey, and people come up to me afterwards and said, 81%, it's probably 95%. I've heard the high 90s mentioned to me multiple times. How do you change that? How do you change well, that? Well, that becomes the culture of the fire service. The, the military has, is, is way ahead of the fire service, and the, and the law enforcement is way ahead of the fire service. They've been using mental health and psychologists for a lot longer than the fire. And, and that's where, that's where my, my organization, the Fire Service Psychology Association, is working to bridge that gap between mental health and the fire service and to, to break down those stigmas, to break down the notion that, that you, you can have issues. And if you deal with them early, uh, or prevention, you know, think about it from a fire prevention point of view. You know, you come in and you you make sure that you don't have uh, uh, flammable materials in a in a in a bad place, and so you can go in and mitigate the danger. And so, can we mitigate the problems in the fire in in the individual fireman's life, so that it doesn't get to the point of uh, to a flashpoint? And, and so think about it in terms of fire prevention. And that's a cultural issue. And that's got to come down from the chief. When the, when, the fire, when the fire chief says, you know, it's okay to talk about these issues. And now we take it down to the officer level, down to the station. And that station officer opens that door to those kind of discussions around the dinner table, you know, and talks about, God, that was a bad call. I, I was, I just can't get my head around that. And just talk about it. Well, that rookie who hears that captain or that lieutenant talking like that is gonna is gonna say, oh, this is uh, the the culture here. It, it's okay to talk about the fact that I I wanted to go throw up after that call, or I wanted to I wanted to cry when I saw that baby. And I, and I can't let them see me weak. Think about female firefighters and the problem that they have with their ability to express their feelings and the, the whole suck it up buttercup philosophy that the fire service has had forever. So if we want to reduce the suicides, we've got to change the cultural phenomena and the issue of it's okay to have problems just like any other human being. You know what, Chuck, it's always great to have you on the show. You have such a different philosophy on how to help people and how to intervene. And it's really refreshing because I think regardless if you believe in religion, regardless if you think you're spiritual, you kind of have a way of bringing that conversation out. It's a special tool that you have. And I, I don't think there's many psychologists out there that have the willingness to stick to their guns when it comes to convincing people about their own mortality and how important it is to understand it. And if there's one thing I've personally learned from you is that your viewpoint and what you're doing is really so different. It's intriguing. And I think that's what you're trying to do. 
you're trying to take someone who might be suicidal and you're getting them back to the middle because they're curious. You're bringing the way people think about mental health. It's super cool. I, I, I consider you a friend, but I also really like what you're doing. It's, it's definitely intriguing for sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share this. And, and uh, I, I asked my supervisor probably in the first couple of years of my career at the VA, and my, my, I, said, I said to him, I said, what, what does it take to be an expert in any kind of a, of a field? And he said, well, when you decide that you're an expert, then you become an expert. <laughs> he said, there's no way to measure that. So my, my goal and my opportunity with, with working with you, my goal is to challenge and to, to do it. it. It reminds me of Shakespeare in, in Hamlet, where he said, things are neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And my career has been dedicated to challenging people to think differently because that's what creates and, and guides people in their actions. Well, it's very effective. So on behalf of the fire service, thank you very much. All right. Well, I love it.